Well, I have to say that I am coming off of a, a, a week of some real disappointment um, on the reports back from the small groups getting together and going through the notes that were provided for you for the small group discussion time. I don't think by a show of hands even, one person got my Bono reference in the notes. Like, seriously? Oh, oh okay, Northside. Okay, good. all right, all right. Props to Northside. Okay, they're the one group. <laughs> I met with my group, and I was like, do you see what's developing? And, I, you know, I can't find what I'm looking for, whatever the title is. Do you see it? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Someone that knows. My group was an embarrassment. They had, I think half the folks at our group had never heard the song. It's like, isn't that Americana? I don't know. Maybe. But I thought I was being clever. I, 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 I'm not very clever. I'll stay away from being clever. But it is interesting if you track the song with Luke 24, you notice at the end, he believes in kingdom come. That's the either which way. Look at the footnote on the notes. Um, you'll never listen to the song, although none of you listen to the song, so <laughs> never mind. I thought you'd never listen to it the same, but you don't listen to it at all, so that's cool. But I, for one, uh, it'd be sad to think a whole church would grow up not knowing you too, but either which way, whatever. I digress. The walk to Emmaus. Um, is where we're at in Luke 24. Um, And as I said, the introduction to chapter 24, um, the the writing of 24 is brilliant. Luke does a a phenomenal job of of summarizing, climactically continuing, and then completing the uh, entire gospel work. So two years in the making here at Redeemer comes down for Luke for us to like look at this chapter 24, as this one chapter, to stand alone, really encompasses the entire journey beginning in chapter 1. He even ends it in a a stroke of artistry uh, at the very last verse. Um, If you look at 53, notice where the the book, the entire gospel work, that is just before he like kind of creates a a period there in 53, and then he begins in Acts 1 as part 2 of where the story then goes and its fullest meaning. But you notice uh, he kind of bookends it in this own volume 1 with the, the journey ending in the temple, verse 53, and they were continually in the temple blessing God. The book began in the temple. So just... It's a brilliant, brilliant book. And this standalone chapter 24 will take you through the entire journey just on your way to Emmaus. He's going to tell you the entire account. But fortunately, you don't need to skip two years of learning it to just jump to chapter 24. But take each piece. But then you look at 24, you think, this, is, this contains the entire book. And just Emmaus, its questions and its answers. An interesting piece of how he uses chapter 24 to, to, to prod your thought process, to, to draw you in as a reader. He uses irony very strategically here. The irony that is present in this opening, in this chapter, kind of has two opening pieces. One, you see it where he develops the um, stranger here who appears. The stranger walks up and he starts asking them questions. By the end of the, the, the by, by way of asking questions, by the end, he ends up being the teacher. 
So you see, you don't know who he is. That's the irony. It's revelation through concealment. Why conceal it? Well, by way of concealing who he is, he's actually revealing who he is. It's, it's brilliant. It's the questioner, this random stranger, becomes the teacher without those who are being asked the questions realizing it. Until at the end they'll say, did not our hearts burn within us when he was telling us the word of God? So see, they realize, but, but he's concealed. But Luke's saying through this, he is actually revealing himself very powerfully to them by another way. Then the, the other aspect of irony, is, so it moves from the first, this random questioner becomes the teacher in this exchange. And then the other one that we won't get to, and I told my small group, I'm going to do my best to get to this part, but I just can't. And that is, we'll get there next time, and that is the meal. At the point of the meal of Revelation, where he sits with them, they realize psh, their eyes are open, but not in the immediate moment. They have just been asked questions by this random stranger. They have learned something, but not everything, because their eyes have not been open to gauge really who he is, to realize who's talking to them. But their hearts are burning within as he speaks the word of God to them. They're on fire at this little small group Bible study in a, 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 on the street of Emmaus, on their way to Emmaus. Oh, what is he saying? I can't believe it. The import, the way our hearts are burning. Listen to what he's saying. And then they're still like, hey, do you want to spend the night? And so then the dinner guest, at that point, he works through and he serves him a meal and he becomes the host. Brilliant, brilliant writing. In Luke 24. Notice the introduction then as we get started in this amazing work here in Luke 24 for our own edification and our own growth in the word of the Lord to understand the meaning of and the central message of Easter. Luke explains it to us so beautifully. Look in verse 13 through 16. I'll read 13 through 16 as the story is kind of setting up as it moves forward. Verse 13, that very day, Two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. So, so the direction is they're leaving Jerusalem, right? Going roughly seven miles to a location known as Emmaus. And as they were walking with each other, uh, or, or excuse me, as they were talking with each other about all these things. And, and that's another piece, this huge information at the center of the chapter is all these things. And talking about how they had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near to them and he went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. As you notice there, again, they didn't know it was Jesus himself. And and, and that's the part of the irony here is they're going to find out, but not by looking at him. For us, Luke tells us the story so we know, but there's an emphatic emphasis here on Jesus himself. The way that the sentence is constructed, it's emphasizing to you, it's not another proxy. It's not another prophet. It's not another individual. It's not one of the 12. It's Jesus. Yes, Jesus himself stood in their midst, emphasizing once again the resurrection He himself was there. And it's amazing then what transpires. 
Notice how Luke unites the entire passage, though, to what we looked at in verses 1 through 12. There's a temporal marker there right at the very beginning, and you see it. It's very obvious. Verse 13, that very day. Um, This idea of the very day refers back to verse 1. If you see chapter 24, verse 1, but on the very first day of the week at early dawn. So they, they went to the tomb, taking the spices which they had prepared. So at this point, it's very early. It's up at dawn. It's the first day of the week. It's Lord's Day. What the New Testament will then codify going forward as Lord's Day is the first day of the week. Here we are, gathered on Lord's Day, the first day of the week, the point of resurrection. And it's the same day. So after the ladies get back, they come running back, and they begin to tell everyone. If you notice uh, verse 9, we looked at this briefly um, last week, and then uh, again maybe in your discussions this week. But notice as we go from the first day of the week what had happened so far. Verse 9, returning from the tomb, they told all these things. And then verse 14, what are they talking about? All these things. So again, verse 9, they they, they told them all these things to the eleven. And to all the rest. So here you have, after this explanation, um, the two of them in verse 13, the two of these individuals that very same day were the people who are up there in verse 9. They're the people who heard the ladies' reports. They were there. The, the, The ladies come back. You won't believe what we saw. And you hear him later. He says, and moreover, some women from our own company amazed us. So see, these two folks leaving Jerusalem on the road to Emmaus were in Jerusalem and just heard that very same day the ladies' reports. He has risen. The angels told us. And to them they thought, this is an idle tale. And these two here on their way to Emmaus didn't think anything different. To them at that point, we are characterizing these individuals as those who were there with all the rest of the people who had just heard the information, and they, at this point, think it to be an idle tale. Now, as if I could make one more kind of introductory comment about how to read and a reading strategy for chapter 24, there's kind of two layers going on here. One concern of this text, and I'm going to kind of conclude with this as we look at it particularly, but there's one, there's the single aspect of individual conversions. So so that's on you, right, and and on me, each of us as listeners. This text is particularly concerned at one level and in one layer as each text, but particularly here as Jesus himself approaches them. This text is particularly concerned with individual conversion to the events being announced. So the weight of this information is upon you, the listener, to embrace with faith. This is a concern of this passage. Jesus is going to rehearse from all the scriptures of things concerning himself. He is the one who is going to initiate a relationship with these two individuals on the road to Emmaus. And Luke wants you to read it in that way in your own sense of how a relationship with Jesus is established. He pursues you. And he does so through a very standardized, ordinary method. Through the scriptures. That's where faith comes from. In the hearing of the word of God. 
So, so this text is concerned, and you as a listener ought be concerned with your own conversion, with your own relationship to the events being described in this passage. And the other aspect, though, is it's more global. So, so you have this individual concern in the passage for individual cons- conversions. Not what does everybody think about the truth of Emmaus Road? What does everybody think about the resurrection? Luke says, what do you think? You, listener, what do you think? Like if nobody else was here, what do you think about the resurrection? What do you think is the meaning of Easter for you? Not for the two on the way to Emmaus. Right now, what does Easter mean for you? And then also, as one who is converted to the truth of these events, he then says, you know what? You, then, are my witnesses to these events. Look at where the passage goes. Um, We'll just jump to verse 47 and and, and I'll I'll move on. But look at from the individual concern of these two individuals on their way to Emmaus. The Lord is concerned this morning with you, a listener, individually, as he approaches you through the preaching of his word. And then verse 47, one who is converted to these events, what is the role then going forward? Verse 47, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name. How, how, how far to all nations? This is the global aspect of this passage, and that's what the book of Acts picks up, of how the gospel goes throughout the entire world. But, then, but, but this is a concern here. The church's mission as those converted to the truth of these events, beginning from Jerusalem. It's going to start in Jerusalem. And then verse 48 continues. You, you who are converted to this truth, you who, whose faith rests upon this truth, you are witnesses of these things. Don't bottle them up. You are witness to them. And then again, uh, behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. And you see that again in the book of Acts. But I I want to just impress upon you that as you read Luke 24, in these huge world-changing events, yes, they are indeed global, but they are also deeply individual. Those two things are not strictly broken. They relate one with another. You're responsible to be a witness to these events if you have been converted to them through faith. But again, to Luke's work of irony and, and, and the use of concealment by, or excuse me, um, revelation by way of concealment, right? That's very backward. How do you reveal something by concealing it? Well, just it begins this way. Notice in verse 16, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Here we discussed just briefly a couple of weeks ago what is considered in, 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 in Greek classifying of verbs and so forth, uh, passive, active, so on and so forth. Here is a classification of what's called the divine passive. Once again, that an activity has happened upon an individual. This, this, is, this is something outside of the person. The person received it coming from the outside. And that the attribution of who did the action to the subject is God. Or to the object is God as subject. He's causing them not to be able to see Jesus. 
So, so, so what's the point? Well, if you're, if you're to look at, at the text, you'd have to ask, look at, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Otherwise, you have to think, they just didn't see him. They didn't get it. Here he comes walking up within conversational context, and they're like, we have no idea who you are. And you're like, oh, that can't be. I mean, they just saw him be crucified just uh, three days ago. So, so that, that they, they would have recognized him. And, or you look at it and you think, well, maybe he was so mangled from the crucifixion events that like, they were like, who in the world is a zombie? But, but no, the, the, the text is very clear. They were concealed. They, 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 were, they were caught up in such a way and acted upon in such a manner as to not be able to recognize who he was. Now, it strikes you as odd a bit, doesn't it? You think if you were ready to just show up, you had just been resurrected, and here you see what the text very clearly says, there's two individuals here that you know, and their hearts are absolutely devastated and broken. Look at the the way they're described, verse 17. And he said to them, what is the conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. So so here, he loves them. He cares for them. And, and here he's been resurrected, and he could immediately alleviate their stress and, and, and destroy their burdens. And he doesn't. Rather, we find that their, their, their eyes are shut up from being able to recognize him. Again, if it were me, I would, without a doubt, it seems, very naturally scream out, Here I am. It is I, Adam. I'm your friend. You know, you, you explain it to your mother who's crying because she thinks she just died, and you're like, well, I'm just going to not let her know it's me. You, you wouldn't. So you have to ask the question, why? Right? As good readers, Luke wants you to ask, why? What? So, so he says, and then he says, but their eyes, so, so while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself, it was nobody else, it was no proxy, he himself, resurrected in the flesh, drew near and went with them. They're, they're in, a, they're in a, a, a triangulated relationship, one, two, and three. Here we go. We're walking down the street, talking and sharing. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Why? Why? And the answer comes to us through the passages. We'll develop it here in just a moment. But I want to just give you the bird's eye answer, and that is simply this. He wants to prepare them for the revelation of himself in the flesh. He wants to prepare them through a fresh understanding of the prophecies of the resurrection. He wants to prepare them. Instead of being like, it's me, Jesus. And they're like, it is. He sees there as one stop prior to doing that. And that is to ground them upon the prophecies of the resurrection first. Why is that so important? There's multiple ways to answer the, the, the question, right? Because you have to ask it, why? Why is, that, why? why is that better? Why is it better to explain to them the prophecies of the resurrection rather than just tell them when they're standing right there that it's him? Why? why? Why does he do that? I get it. Okay, so he wants to do it that way. But why would he want to do it that way? And the answer has to be, if we look at the book of Acts for sure, that the doctrine of the word of God, the surety of the foundation of the word that has been spoken, <laughs> will minister to them throughout their entire lives, and it will be the impetus to conversions globally. The doctrine of the word of God, 
They must, we must, as the church, one foundation. Our shared confession and hope has to be grounded upon the Word of God. I said it a few moments ago, right? From where will faith arise? So so you are witnesses of these things. You are my witnesses to these very things. Now go out to all the nations and do what? Teach them. Teach them what? things that I have spoken. The church can't fundamentally lack confidence in the word of God and be witnesses to it. So he prepares them for the revelation of himself in flesh by grounding them in confidence in the prophecies of God concerning these events. If they are to preach them, they must have confidence in them. For faith comes through hearing, and hearing through the word of God. But notice again, so he's going to ground them rather than just simply reveal to them. But he's going to work them methodically through a foundation that is laid for them in the word of God, particularly the Old Testament at this point. And so notice how he does so as he plays the part of the um, willing stranger. That is the questioning stranger as he approaches them. Look at verses 17 and 18. And so their eyes are concealed. We now know why, because he wants to ground them in the doctrine of the word of God. That, that, that this isn't something brand new. That, that this, isn't, this is something that is taught from of old. And they must have confidence in it, because they're going to be a witnesses to it for global evangelism. And so he keeps them from recognizing them. Their eyes, in the divine passage, they, they, their eyes are covered over. Verse 17, and so then he spoke to them. He said to them, hey, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Can you imagine? You're walking. You, you just saw the crucifixion of who you fully thought was the Messiah. You, you just saw him die. And so now you're through Friday and you're Saturday and here you are on Sunday. And as he says, moreover, ladies from our company came and told us that he's gone. And you're walking and, and, and everyone was talking about it. And then someone walks up and is like, hey, what are you guys talking about? And uh, uh, Presumably, you're probably weeping or at least weepy-eyed and you're, you're comforting each other because the text very clearly says, we know their demeanor at this point. They were very sad. And he walks up and says, hey, guys, what are you talking about? What's the nature of your conversation? I, I'm kind of overhearing these things that you're talking about. You can imagine. And you see Clopas stand forward and be like, Guy, are you kidding me? Are you the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know what just happened? Are you the only one? You don't know? So look at how he describes it. Then one of them named Clopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened here in these days? Now, just to mark out the character who speaks up in order to give clarity to who are these two people who are walking on the road to Emmaus, they're leaving Jerusalem. They heard the things that were described from the ladies, and now they're leaving town And one of them now is given to us by Luke. His name is Clopas. Um, If you were to go to John 19.25, why not? Luke uh, uh, to John. John 19.25. 
to give us a little clarity or a window into who is this individual who is on the way to Emmaus. And there is one person who is also with him, right? We saw the very same day they're leaving and there's two of them present. And now our Lord appears to them and then he asks them as a stranger, what are you guys talking about and what took place this day? Clopas, the name that we're given, stands for and is like, are you kidding me? Are you the only guy who doesn't know? Um, so who is he? Verse 25 uh, of chapter 19 in John says, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And then Jesus proceeds to see them and then speak forward to John. So, so if, if, if you're to look at, uh, yes, maybe Luke offers a little bit different spelling. It's neither here nor there. It's the same individual. Clopas was, um, married, is married to Mary, uh, and, and so she was there at the very crucifixion events. Where he was in relationship to them, not sure, but these two are, are relatives of Jesus. They're related to him. Um. And so it is presumably to go to the road of Emmaus, he and his wife who are leaving Jerusalem. They are together. And so she saw the crucifixion events, and um, perhaps he even did as well. Maybe he is with her. But either way, John doesn't tell us if, that was, if he was present or not. He's with her now. And so these two individuals is a married couple who are leaving Jerusalem and heading to Emmaus. And they can't believe that this stranger who now appears to them has no idea of the heartache and the brokenness and, the, and the, the dashed hopes that took place in Jerusalem within two days or three days prior. But again, I want to strike just a note of what irony is at work here. Look, look very carefully at Clopas' question. Look very carefully. He says, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? Think about that for a moment. Our Lord here would basically reply to him, no, actually, Clovis, I think I seem to be the only one who knows what happened in these things, in these days. Do you see? What are you guys talking about? Are you the only one who doesn't know? No, Clovis, I think I'm the only one who does. And so the questioner now moves forward. He thinks, I don't know. I have to help him understand he doesn't know the meaning of these things. And so in a brilliant way, our Lord then gives the example to all the teachers in the room, and there's uh, two or three or, or those who oversee students of different kinds. This is a brilliant example, right, of what you do at a regular basis when there's a student who doesn't understand something. Right? What do you do? You begin to ask them, hopefully, if you have the patience, perhaps only very momentarily, but in your best moments, you, you, you begin to ask them, well, what, okay, well, all right, how, how can I begin to explain this to you? I'll ask you the question and see if I can get to where you're even coming from, and then we'll build from that faulty foundation, that faulty understanding, and we'll arrive at a good conclusion because I'm going to help. But I need to understand what do you think happened here? And that's exactly what he does. So he begins to question purposely, leading them to the right conclusion. 
Are you the only one who doesn't get it? No, I'm the only one who does. What do you think happened? Is exactly what we see in the passage. So again, he sets the stage for two interpretations, and that's how we're going to end this morning. Two interpretations of these events. First, he begins with theirs. A brilliant move, of course. So that he can point out, you don't get it, Clopas. It's you who has visited Jerusalem this day and doesn't understand the events that have happened there in these days. Look at verse 19 through 24. And he said to them, what things? Right? There it is. There's the move. There's the rhetorical move by the teacher. Do you not understand the things that have happened? These things, these days? I, I guess, what things? You tell me. What are these things? And they said to him, right? So then they provide. Oh, my goodness. All right, all right, all right, all right. Take it from the top. The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth. Can you imagine our Lord is standing there? Tell me about it, Clopas. Who is he? What has he done? Well, it's the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth. A man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. This is who he is. Once again, Luke wants you to remember, it's not just Jesus who was there. Jesus himself was standing there. And they speak of him as though he isn't. He is this. Yes, Luke says, hey, guys, Jesus himself was standing there. And Clopas is like, I'll tell you exactly who he is. He is a man who is a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death. And they crucified him. Are you the only one who doesn't understand? But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. You can imagine our Lord hearing all this thinking. That's where I need to begin. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this. It is now the third day since these things have happened. It's been three days. Moreover, some women from our company amazed us, perplexed us, dumbfounded us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb. And you remember earlier in the passage, it's Peter rose up and he ran to the tomb. He found the linen shroud. And then, again, he's marveling at this point in time because there's a shroud left and there's no body. So that would be weird. Take the shroud off and then carry out a bloodied body. Again, perplexing. Not sure why is the shroud here and why is the body not. Those two things kind of go together. What's with the shroud and not the body? Peter, at the end so far, is simply marveling. Unsure. So they tell this same thing to Jesus. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb, that would be him, and found it just as the women said. But him, they did not see. Again, two things emerge here in the interpretation of Clopas. Number one is the power of Jesus' preaching ministry. Set him aside to be the great prophet of the word of God. They saw power in his preaching ministry. That's what the ladies, when the angel said, do you not remember the things that he told you? 
And as they speak of it, the ladies just feel, we do remember the things he said. We thought him to be the prophet chosen of God. We heard him preach. We thought for sure this is he. And then they'll say a little bit later, as I mentioned in the text, whenever he does that, whenever he undertakes to preach, the audience hearts and belief, they burn within them. We thought him to be the prophet through the power of his preaching. Second aspect is we thought him to be the prophet by his, not only his words, but his deeds, the power of his miracles, the wonder of his miracles, raising people from the dead, feeding the hungry, healing those who had no hope. We had witnessed it. We were there. We thought him to be our hope. But the crucifixion has dashed their hopes to the ground. N.T. Wright, once again, done a wonderful job in the work of the resurrection. He explains it this way, quote, it wasn't just that Jesus had been the bearer of their hopes and he was now dead and gone. It was sharper than that. If Jesus had been the one to redeem Israel, he should have been defeating the pagans, not dying at their hands. This is why they're walking to Emmaus. This is why the look upon the face is deep sadness. If he was who we thought he was, he wouldn't be dying at their hands. He would be slaying them and conquering them, delivering us as people. That's why Jesus says, are you the only, as he says to him, are you the only one who doesn't understand the things that happened here? He says, what things? You tell me. What do you think happened here? Our hopes are dashed, is what happened here. He who we thought to deliver us was crucified and killed. But notice even further, just a little bit, what is very telling about Clopas' interpretation of the resurrection. Notice it in verse 24. Look how he explains the resurrection to Jesus himself. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as women had said. Look at, look at the final work of Clopas' explanation of the, the, the possibilities of resurrection. He just simply says, but him, they did not see. You see, his interpretation of the resurrection at this point in time is not only have we not seen him yet, his body was even missing, so we don't even know where he would be. So at one point, we could have mourned him, right? He was there, and we knew the tomb. And now it's gotten even worse. We don't even know where he is, dead or alive. And here he stands right in front of Clopas as he says it. Of him we do not see. So again, we knew where he was, and now it's even worse. They went and told us that the shroud's there. He's gone, so now we don't know where he is whether he is alive or dead. We don't know. So that's the final cap on his rehearsal of these stunning events of the resurrection. And now, just in our last couple of moments together, our Lord then turns the table. He goes from questioner and stranger to teacher and Lord. Notice how he changes the interpretation of these things. Look at verse 25 through 
27. And he said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Do you see? That, that, that was the introduction. Why doesn't he just tell them? It's me. Hey, I'm right here. Just then they're like, we don't even know where he is, whether he's dead or alive or where his body is. Hey, it's me right here. Why does he, why not? You, the church, this morning have to have that same sense of confidence in the power of God to keep his promises. That what he has said to you will most surely happen. That you are banking, right? You're banking on this. That this is exactly true. Not kind of or approximately so. But what he has promised to you, he will perform. That, that, that when you were lost in sin, in darkness, he says, I will deliver you through faith alone. And you're banking on that to be true. You know that to be true. The church has to rest upon the foundation of the word of God. That's why he says, oh, foolish one, slow of heart. To do what? To believe what was spoken. That's why we have to be careful as he describes them here as foolish and slow of heart. It isn't an insult on their intelligent levels. Right, right, like, hey, you're not very smart. Oh, foolish ones. You guys are really dense. It's not an insult. It's not like, I can't believe you don't get it. It's, it's not an insult. And notice how, because he then adds to them, and slow of heart. You lack courage. You're foolish to do what? Particularly, foolish and slow of heart in relationship to what? Just out and out foolish people? Slow of heart, you lack courage? No, it's particular. Your foolishness is related particularly to something. And he says this to you as well. If you disregard it, you're foolish, slow of heart to do what particularly? To believe all that is spoken by the prophets. You see, their failure of insight comes not so much from an inability to understand. And this is particular to the church, right? You might have a comprehensive understanding of biblical doctrine. You may have your, you know, some real good grappling hooks in the text of Scripture and be like, I know this, I know that. I know I don't like that. I know I don't believe that. I know I believe this. You may have that sense of knowledge, but does your faith rest upon it? Is it converting knowledge? Or is it a form of like kind of obnoxious know-it-allism? I just made a know-it-allism up. But you know it when you see it. Is it converting knowledge? That, that's the question. Or, or, or is it foolish? Is it foolish to you? Is it slow of heart for you? Is it like, well, I get it. I could break it down. But, but, but are you slow of heart and foolish to believe it? Is it converting to you? That's impressed upon you. Again, their failure to, of insight is not so much an inability to understand. They get it. As much as it comes from a lack of faith to believe all that is spoken to them. Guys, 
No, 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 guys, are you the only one who doesn't understand? I'm the only one who does. No, the things that happened in Jerusalem. Okay, yes, you tell me then what happened in Jerusalem. Oh, is that what you got? Clopas, is that how you're to describe it? Oh, yeah, and our hopes are dashed upon the rocks. Wow. Slow of heart. Foolish to believe all the things that have been spoken to you for your edification and confidence. I want to kind of conclude just this way this morning to remind you and I that at every pass, true faith possesses three aspects. We've covered this before at Redeemer, but it's critical here because look at the text. And he said to them, oh, foolish ones, not blanketly, not not slow of heart in everything. No, you're foolish and slow of heart, particularly to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And then he describes, was it not of necessity? If, If you listen to the prophets, what is it that the text said to you? That it is of necessity that the Christ should suffer. No, our hopes were dashed upon the rocks when he suffered. No, wasn't it of necessity that he suffered? If you would listen to the prophets in faith, you would know of this necessity. That through such suffering he will enter into his glory. Clopas, did you get that out of the things in Jerusalem? And so then he begins to brilliantly correct verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. He interpreted in them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. As I said to you, biblical saving faith encompasses three aspects. Please hear me as I conclude so that you can grasp for your own edification your principle of faith as he here speaks to them. Biblical, true, and saving faith encompasses three aspects. Number one, knowledge. That is a knowledge of content. In this case, to them, their belief, the knowledge of content they were being called to wrestle with and grasp is all that the prophets have spoken. That's the content. So so your faith comes to you through the preaching, comes to you through the word of God. It's content. Real historical event that must be spoken to you that your faith might have that hook to which you rest upon. A knowledge of event that you might believe in the knowledge expressed. So true saving faith possesses knowledge. Secondly, it possesses an assent to that knowledge. What we mean by assent is that you acknowledge that doctrine or that content as true. In this case, I recognize that it's not that it just happened that Jesus died in Jerusalem. Do you not know the things that happened in Jerusalem? Sure, I know the things. Sure, I mean, every, even, even the farthest stretching denying sectors, as far as faith is concerned, recognize the historical event. Yeah, Jesus of Nazareth lived. Yeah, sure, we, can, you know, we know roughly where he'd have been. We know what age he was. We know what he did. We know what he taught. Sure, we recognize that it occurred. Yes. 
So Clopas says, do you not know the things? Oh, I know the things. But do you know why the things happen? Why? To the converted, you say, because I need them. They happened as described for me. I assent to that. I recognize when it says this is what you need, I recognize it. I say, that is what I need. Assent is that aspect. In, in this case, it is, if you, if you look at how it's broken down in the text, just briefly as I conclude, it is the aspect of his suffering that he may enter into glory. Um, you must hear the content, right? So, so here's the knowledge. Verse 25, all the prophets have spoken. There's your data. And, but I know what they've said. Well, then you should have known the truth of what they said, that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. That's the truth of these things. And that's the aspect of assenting to the truth of those things. The final aspect of biblical and saving faith described in the text of Scripture is trust. Do you trust in these things? Like, do you all bank on these things? You know them. I can look out and see everybody here. All of you know them. Knowledge. Got it. Assent. Why they happen? What about trust? Are they your only hope in life and death? You know it. I get a fair sense you've assented to it. That it's true. I wouldn't sing it if it wasn't. I wouldn't come if it wasn't. Are you then, against all competing forces, trusting solely on it? We were at the pool a couple weeks ago. My parents were in town. I think it was last weekend, actually. And the, the, like the, 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 one of the greatest goals, or one of the greatest excitements of my parents or Adri's parents coming to town is they stay at the hotel down the street and has a pool. So we're over at the pool, and we're watching kids be kids and do things kids do. And I happened to look over and it was, it was quite a lesson for me. Uh, Charlotte uh, got to the edge of the pool, turned around, shouted for me to watch, and then turned around and just did a back smack right on the water. For me, I thought, wow, she will never have trouble in corporate settings with trust faults. Right? Okay, let's get the team together. Let's motivate each other. Okay, you stand on the desk and then you fall. Oh, we're all going to work together as a team. Charlie gets it. She's like, hey, I got the trust fall. I'm about to stand right here, and I know there's water down there. I know there is. Right? So she's, she's banking on that water. The knowledge of it that I saw, I assent to the fact it's there to swim in, and it's going to break my fall. I'm going to turn around. Dad, check this out. I am going to fall back on this water for whatever irrational reason a child wants a back smacker. But the point is she's, a, she's, a, she's trusting in that water. It's there for me. Or we're going to children's really fast. Smack. Squarely hit right in the middle of her back on the water. But it was there. It was there. It was, it, 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 she just, whoosh. that's faith. It's not just that you know of it and that you assent to its truth claim. You turn around, you fall right upon it. And you know it's there. You fall. Bam. 
that's the aspect of biblical faith. So the text is very clear then in verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So badly, Emmaus reveals to us, just so badly, how much we need the presence of the Lord, how we need his sense of guidance, how we need his light and his strength and his power, that we would hear from him all that the prophets have spoken, we would believe in that and assent, and we would fall upon it in trust. Let us pray. Father of 